Welcome to the Myopia Exchange, our new podcast series where we talk all things myopia from research to practice. Today I'd like to welcome Professor Mark Bullimore, who with an illustrious academic career across the UK and America is now an adjunct professor at the University of Houston and a consultant extraordinaire to research and industry groups. His body of research includes an extensive contribution to the myopia field, with key recent papers being invaluable reviews on the safety of soft contact lenses in children, the safety of ortho-K, and myopia control, why every doctor matters. Mark is a well-known myopia profile contributor and a lecturer in myopia at major conferences across the world, flying the evidence-based flag. With an extensive grasp of the literature and a pull-no-punches approach, I think Mark and I could probably talk for several podcasts and even pull some punches on each other, all in good nerdy fun, but today we're going to focus on low-dose atropine. Mark, welcome to the Myopia Exchange. Thanks for uh, having me, Kate, and thanks for that nice introduction. Oh, I try my best. So I think we'll get down to it straight away. And what I want to talk about in terms of atropine, there's a lot of uh, interesting views out there in the world, and, and there's a lot of complexity to the topic. But last year, you published a noteworthy review with David Bernson, which was questioning the evidence on 0.01% atropine. And this has been a key paper in shifting the prescribing tide away from 0.01% and towards higher concentrations. Can you give us a bit of an overview of why 0.01% atropine perhaps isn't all it's cracked up to be? Well, first, um, what we published was really a letter to the editor, and it was in response to a meta-analysis on atropine uh, that was published in JAMA Ophthalmology. And we've really sort of... Uh, uh, hit our limit in terms of people talking about atropine and really ignoring the um, the axial length data. So that's really uh, was our purpose there. And you know, the thing that have frustrated a number of us is that uh, you know there'd been an Academy of Ophthalmology report on it that ignored the axial length data, and this uh, meta analysis was you know the, the last straw, so to speak. So um, I should uh, give David a lot of credit for really sort of bringing this to my attention several years before. I'd also been uh, um, something of a atropine dilettante until uh, David sort of said, hey, well, what about this? Um, so I think people have uh, over-interpreted or over uh, in, overly embraced the 0.01% atropine story. And let me just start by pointing out a couple of important features between atom one and atom two. So the original atom study you know, randomized, I think, 400 kids to either atropine or a placebo. And the thing that's often overlooked is that atom one with the 1% was uh, unilateral dosing. Uh, it wasn't a bilateral treatment. And that may not be too big an issue, except when you think about things like rebound, because uh, a binocular vision geek like yourself, Kate, would uh, want to think about both eyes. So one question that comes out from a unilateral dosing study is whether um, that would affect rebound, because you know, the eyes may be talking to each other somehow. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, so... Obviously, the key feature of atom two was that the 0.01%, the lowest dose, which of course was originally intended as something of a control, um, 
seemed to slow myopia progression almost as much as the higher doses. Um, but lost in most of the discussion about that is that there was apparently no slowing of axial elongation. So the the Atom 2 kids who are on 0 0.01 bilaterally, uh, they elongated by about 0.4 millimeters over two years. And that was pretty much the same as the control eyes in the original Atom 1. So you've got no dose um, you've got no effect on axial elongation there, even though you had a fairly robust effect on uh, refractive error. So it's useful, though, to step back and sort of say, OK, what are the key differences between the studies? And could you use that Atom 1 data as a control? Um, one of the important distinctions I've already mentioned was the fact that Atom 2 was bilateral treatment, whereas Atom 1 was unilateral. Um, I've heard people say, well, the, they were different ages. Well, not really. Um, the kids in Atom 1 were 9.2 years at baseline, and the kids on the 0.01% uh, in Atom 2 were uh, 9.5 years. So if anything, you'd expect the uh, Atom 2 kids to progress a little less, being you know, four months older. Um, <clears throat> but it's probably a marginal difference. The other thing that I've heard people talk about and sort of as an important difference between the two trials is that uh, uh, Atom 1 used ultrasound, whereas um, Atom 2 used the, I believe, the IOR master, um, but some other optical method. Now, we know that ultrasound is more variable, but that doesn't mean it's not valid. Um, so if you think about refractive uh, cataract surgeons, they were using it for years and years and years. Um, to produce valid results and, on average, really good results uh, as far as cataract surgery. And the same is true for monitoring progression. It's not ideal for monitoring the progression in an individual patient, but when you've got over 100 kids and you're measuring them uh, uh, over time, it provides a very valid measure of axial elongation. So um, let me stop there and uh, pause for breath. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's fascinating to really think about Atom 1 and Atom 2 and how they compare because it's really on the back of those studies that the popularity of 0.01% atropine has exploded. And as you've said, there's some problems with that data in understanding what the true effect is when there wasn't a control group in Atom 2 and then when comparing back to Atom 1. So do we have better data now? What are newer studies telling us that, that do have control groups? For example, we have the, the LAMP study, the one-year study which was published last year and there was two-year data presented at the International Myopia Conference recently. Are we getting better results from these newer studies? Um, somewhat. Um, so LAMP is an improvement because, again, they had 100 kids randomized to each of the groups, the 0 0.01, the 0 0.025, and the 0 0.05 atropine, along with a control group. And, you know, so they had nice one-year data. Um, now we'll, we'll talk about the potency of their drug in a minute, I think. But uh, so certainly you've got a concurrent control group. You've got um, a group of subjects, control subjects, who are progressing and elongating, as you would expect, um, so in that regards, it's more reliable data because in the Atom 1 and Atom 2 studies, you're comparing to a historical control 
um, which seems to be reasonable. I mean, the odd, you know, you can say, well, they they don't seem to be exactly the same, but they progressed and they progressed by an amount that you might expect in a group of Singaporean kids. They didn't elongate perhaps quite as much as you would expect over the two years. Their 0.4 millimeter elongation over two years is probably a little less than the 0.05 or maybe point, sorry, 0.5 or 0.6 millimeters that you might expect in a group of Asian children. But um, it's not completely unreasonable. But um, yeah, LAMP was certainly another important data point, but it's by no means the, uh, uh, the final word on the topic. And LAMP does show still that dose-dependent response that 0.05 and 0.025% had. It appears increasing efficacy uh, compared to 0.01%. So it does seem to tell that same story that 0.01% isn't perhaps the, the saviour for myopia control. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's right. Or it, it may may not be the saviour, but um, I think you want to talk now about perhaps about stability and whether that played a role. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, topic of which I've only just recently learnt more. So I recently had a chat to Professor James Lockman of Dublin about 0.01% atropine, and and he's um, involved in a, a study where they had to work very hard to actually get the compound to be stable. Uh, so understanding how unstable it is and how the fact that it has to be compounded means there's likely to be large variability in what we get in the bottle, this could obviously lead to inconsistent results in practice. So how much do you think this could have influenced research results? Yeah, I mean, I haven't talked to the folks in Hong Kong to find out how exactly or who exactly formulated their atropine for the LAMP study. Um, but James is right, it is an issue. Um, I've been on this for about a year without sort of having much data to, to wave around. Um, but, you know, I, I noticed at meetings that people were getting variations in the midriasis they were reporting, um, all supposedly using 0.01%. So uh, Jeff Wallin and his colleagues presented some data at Arvo maybe 18 months ago, and they really weren't getting very much dilation at all and it's so i yeah i said to them i said yeah how do you know you got any active drug now other people you know have published data where they're getting a much more robust uh dilation with that the atropine and that could that led me to sort of question whether there was variations in the potency so i did a couple of things one is you know i went back to the literature and there are papers from you know, 50, 60 years ago, talking about the stability of atropine. So if you just Google stability of atropine, you'll see a, a paper or two pop up. And it's very clear from those papers many years ago that uh, atropine stability is pH dependent. So when you get a uh, bottle of 1% atropine from Al Alcon or Acorn, wherever you buy it, um, you'll see that it's buffered between 3 and 6%, so it's quite uh, acidic. Um, on the other hand, you know, when it's being compounded, um, it's uh, quite apparent from some informal inquiries that uh, most compounding pharmacies are ignoring the pH completely. They're just diluting it um, without any attention to the... Uh, uh, the acidity of the solution. 
Uh, and that's, how shall I say, that's a problem. <laughs> because um, unless it's stored in an acidic solution, it's if you believe the, the papers that are out there, um, the atropine is going to be very unstable. And that may be contributing to the results. So as uh, James pointed out on your previous podcast, um, when you look at the uh, uh, dilation data or the accommodation data out of uh, Hong Kong and the LAMP study, it doesn't seem that they were getting as much dilation or loss of accommodation as they were in Atom 2. And I think that's a very astute observation. Now, the question is, um, you know, what do you get in, in practice when... Mm -hmm you order atropine from a compound in pharmacy in Australia or the US or anywhere else in the world? And I think that's a, a reasonable, uh, reasonable question. So do you think, so that, that's a problem for, I guess, clinicians in practice to think, okay, what do I do now then? What, what would you suggest they do now knowing that we might have uh, a consistent result with, with the concentration that we're unsure about 0.01%. What do you think is the evidence-based approach to take with atropine right now? Well, let me use an analogy with glaucoma. I mean, if you put in a patient on a glaucoma drug, whether it's a prostaglandin analog or a beta blocker, you're going to see them back in a few weeks or a month, and you're going to check the pressure. Um, why not do the equivalent um, with atropine? And actually what I suggest with uh, prescribing atropine is you see the kid two weeks or four weeks, um, you know, when they're in the, perhaps at the end of the first sort of uh, uh, bottle of, uh, of drug. And why not for that first month, dose them in one eye. So use the other eye as a control and see them back and see whether you're getting a robust dilation because atropine is equipotent across all muscarinic receptors. So if you're getting a dilated pupil in the treated eye, then chances are drugs get it into the eye and in theory then get into all parts of the eye where you might want to have its beneficial effect. So treat one eye for a month, see the patient back and look at pupil size. And the reason I re recommend um, just one eye is it's much easier to get assessed dilation when you've got the other eyes of control rather than relying on the same measurement conditions when you see them back um, a month later. Um, so, you know, I think the advantage... That's a really, yeah, sorry, you go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You're going to say something say, nice. It's a really fascinating way of thinking about atropine in that where we don't want the side effects, but what you're talking about is using the side effects to assess mm -hmm. that we've actually got some useful drug uh, hitting the eye. So yeah, I think so, that's a really fascinating point. Yeah. So, you know, I have the benefit of not seeing patients, so I can just sort of pontificate from my uh, my armchair. Um, but, you know, I think if you think about what else we would do, you know, whether we're treating IOP or blood pressure or blood sugar, whatever, you know, we take, we take some measurements and, you know, we do have with the eye a nice physiological barometer of the amount of drug that's getting into the eye. And if we're not getting a robust dilation, well, maybe our compound in atropine is not what we think it is. Um, maybe the, the drop's not being used. 
Uh, but regardless, you can you know have a conversation and discuss where you go from here, and you know, basically be the doctor. So the other thing about treating uh, one eye um, separately is you're not gonna if you do that you can perhaps be a bit more aggressive in terms of the the dose right off the bat so you could use 0.02 or 0.05 knowing that the kids still got another untreated eye so they're not going to be messed up in terms of their schoolwork or whatever um they're going to still have another eye on which to rely on so i think you can um rather than as some people advocate start with the lowest dose and then increase if necessary you could start with a more you know potentially uh, therapeutic effective uh, dose so that's my uh, that's my clinical pearl from somebody who's not really a clinician <laughs> i think it's a very interesting way to think about it and what we've we've talked about how there's issues with stability of atropine so it, obviously if we have a a preparation that is stable and we know it's stable, we're going to be able to trust those results more so. But do you think it's possible to develop a formulation of atropine or a concentration that works but also doesn't have the side effects? Or is that not possible for atropine as a chemical? <laughs> um, so it's possible, obviously, to um, you know, theoretically produce a low-dose atropine that is stable um and the easiest way to do that is to make it acidic um and that in theory would make it you know more stable than it would be in a a more neutral solution now the companies that are out there developing atropine and going through fda trials they're using a variety of approaches so um, nevercar who are furthest along they are um you know, they have their formulation. Um, they may have some tricks that they've discovered to make it more stable, but um, they probably uh, can put their hand on their heart and say, hey, this is, and they may have data to suggest it's stable. Um, the, the other com another company that's working on FDA trials, one I consult with a fair amount is Inovia. They're the ones who have the microdosing technology that almost sort of puts a little inkjet um, dot of the drug directly onto the cornea. The advantage with that, of course, is you're putting sort of about eight microliters into the eye rather than 25 to 50 uh, with, a, with a regular drop. So there are certain advantages to that in terms of systemic absorption. But again, if you've got less of a drop going into the eye, you can keep the pH where you want it to be um, and it won't in theory, sting as much as uh, a big old drop. Um, and that's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see. But again, you know, as a company, they're looking at 0 0.01 and 0 0.1. So they're looking at two concentrations as our Nevercar. And then the third company that's beginning trials now is a company called Sydnexus. And their intellectual properties involves heavy water, or what's it called? Uh, dyed deuterium oxide, so heavy water, so a different isotope of hydrogen, um, but essentially, you know, the same sort of H2O, but instead it's D2O, deuterium, deuterium oxide. So what they have found, uh, or they believe based on their IP, is that atropine is a whole lot more stable 
in heavy water than it is in regular H2O. Um, so that's what they're pursuing there, and that's their way of improving the stability of it. Um, but as you and I have both sort of heard from other sources, atropine's a beast to work with. Um, it's not ideal in terms of its stability, and you know, we need to figure out somewhere around this, and that's why these ongoing trials, both in the US and elsewhere in the world, using probably... Uh, formulated atropine um, and low-dose atropine uh, are so very important. That's fascinating. That's a nice little journey down chemistry lane. So I wonder if we'll have <laughs> many of our yeah. listeners Googling. Can you say the what's heavy water? Dye, dye, dye. Just if you, um, dye, deuterium is the, um, you know, the basically the deuterium is hydrogen with an extra neutron. Deuterium. Uh, oh, I can't even say it, but I love it. I love the nerdiness of it. So there you uh, go. Guys. I think I've got it. No, I, uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'm just deuterium. Yes. Uh, deuterium is one of two stable isotopes of hydrogen. The, the nucleus of a deuterium atom called the deuteron contains one protein, proton, <laughs> and one neutron, whereas the far more common protium has no neutrons. So it's just. Uh, it's a hydrogen atom with an extra or with a with a neutron. So uh, full disclosure, yeah. my, fa my father's a PhD chemist, but uh, he would be proud of me uh, uh, talking about such things. Anyway, but that's, <laughs> um, that's out there. So, you know, so the question is, of course, once we've got these more um, um, reputable uh, formulations, and believe me, the companies that are... Uh, going through the FDA, you know, they've, they've got to have their uh, uh, ducks lined up as far as stability, um, far more than a compound in pharmacy would. Um, yeah, we may find that 0.01 is, you know, has reasonable effectiveness. But in the meantime, um, I think, you know, without wanting to throw 0.01% completely under the bus, I think what I've been encouraging clinicians to do is to basically prescribe as high a dose um, up to 0.05 that is tolerable in terms of dilation and loss of accommodation. Don't assume the point you're getting 0.01% in your compounded bottle. So push it a little bit because our kids, as I think you and I would both agree, deserve the best myopia control treatment that they can uh, they can get. Um, and we don't want to be prescribing um, ineffective treatments, um, whether it's because 0.01% isn't good enough, period, or 0.01% in its currently compounded form is not what it's cracked up to be. So There's still a lot for us to learn and um, fascinating chemistry to understand as well so i think that's a that's the view of the view of atropine if i think back a couple of years ago was 0.01 percent was everything and then 2018 2019 0.01 percent chuck it in the bin and now 2020 is asterisk conditions apply let's yeah. let's wait and see and and we'll learn so much more about it yeah and i think um you know we're all going to look a little foolish on a number of levels in terms of how we've sort of embraced it um, but um, I think, as you said, there's a huge asterisk at the moment. Um, but as clinicians, um, 
we have the opportunity to you know to control our own uh, destiny and control our own kids uh, treatment um so do it um, be the doctor look how effective it is in terms of dilation and loss of accommodation push it to what you think might be the max um and you know be the doctor so on on that tack i just want to pivot a little bit and talk about with atropine the problem with the mismatch between refractive control and axial length control it's been which has been found in the studies so for example in the lamp one year study which did have a control group 0.01 percent controlled refractive change by 27 percent but only controlled axial length by 12 percent and this mismatch seems to be a bigger problem for atropine than it is for the optical interventions. So, for example, the myopia control contact lens studies only show a few percentage points difference between refractive and axial length control. Now, no percentage points comparing studies to studies are problematic, and that's probably a topic for a, a whole extra podcast we could talk <laughs> about that. But just in terms of the this mismatch why do you think this is a bigger problem for atropine than it is for our other interventions well you know going back to sort of what we learned at optometry school you know when we were if we were a psychoplegia kid with you know one percent atropine we'd get a you know maximum psychoplegia but then we'd have we're taught to sort of back off that by about half a diopter uh due to sort of ciliary tonus um i think regardless of the concentration of atropine, we're seeing some effects on the apparatus, the accommodative apparatus, um, that cause us to get a slightly bigger effect when it comes to refractive error than we see on axial length. Now, mm. and yeah, so that, yeah, I, I think that's what's that, going that on. That makes sense. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense when we're seeing significant side effects. But I guess the thing that might be puzzling for a clinician is that if we're using 0.01% and obviously of, of question and questionable stability, which isn't dilating the pupil or isn't affecting accommodation much, or maybe we're not measuring accommodation to test that, then it might not be expected to have much of a cycloplegic effect. But I guess only uh, also with refractive uh, measurements, there's so much more slip in the system, isn't there, compared to an axial length measurement? Yeah, I mean, that 27 versus 12% that you quote from the LAMP study, um, that 12% is 0 0.05 millimetres um, or 50 microns. Um, so that's getting down to the noise and the measurement error of the, uh, uh, of the device. So um, likewise, 27% for refractive error. That's, again... Uh, you know, putting that back into diopters, I think it's about a quarter of a diopter. Um, you know, again, you're down to sort of, uh, you know, the measurement uh, variability that you get. So I, I don't regard those two numbers as being dramatically different, but it is fair to say across all of the percentages or in all of the concentrations in the LAMP study, the refractive effect was larger than the axial effect. Um, so I think that's something to, to bear in mind um, as we continue to digest all the data that are coming out from these studies. So can I ask on that topic a slightly provocative question then, particularly oh, in view of our, well, we'll see how it goes, um, particularly in view of our uh, desire to measure axial length in practice, but our lack of access to it. 
So my favourite publication of yours this year has been the Wonder After Paper with Noel Brennan. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that's entitled, uh, If for those of you myopia profilers who haven't read it, you should read it, it's entitled Myopia Control, Why Every Doctor Matters. And it makes a landmark statement that every doctor of myopia means a 67% increase in myopic maculopathy risk. And that controlling myopia by one doctor means 40% less myopic maculopathy risk. So this is a clear and strong statement for the why of myopia control. And that's great because it's so easy for practitioners to both understand and communicate in practice. But here's my question. We're all obsessed about axial length. And rightly so, as it has to be measured in a research study for us to understand the myopia control effect. We also understand that greater, greater axial length increases eye disease risk. Axial length and doctors typically correlate, but not always. We can have a two diopter 26 millimeter eye or a four diopter 24 millimeter eye. And obviously that longer axial length in those cases is the bigger indicator of disease risk than the diopters. But the analysis that you've done uses data and doctors as a risk factor, which is highly valuable because that's what we all measure in practice. So this is my pondering. Is refractive control less valuable than axial length control while we're still coming to understand which is the greatest risk factor? Well, I think the two go hand in hand. So again, going back, because you you mentioned to uh, some of the the contact lens studies, and if you look at the MySight, data, and I cite that not out of personal interest, but because we have three years of data um, and good, pretty good follow-up of the kids, there's a good correlation between axial elongation and uh, refractive change in both the treated and the untreated kids. I mean, there's, so you, know, you could say, for example, in clinical practice, if you prescribe in the MySight lens, you might not rush out and get an axial length measurement device right away. You can adequately assess progression um, by measuring refractive error. Now, when you have atropine and some other modalities, you know there may still be a, a disconnect. But ultimately, um, you know there's going to be a pretty good agreement uh, across the board between, or there should be at least <laughs> between. Uh, axial elongation and myopia um, progression. So going back to the sort of the one diopter matters statement, um, you know, uh, sort of reading between the lines on your question, you know, we pulled the data from five large studies that had looked at the relationship between um, the prevalence of myopic maculopathy and degree of myopia and found this fairly robust relationship that you uh, quoted. Um, why did we not do the same for axial elongation? Well, there's two reasons. Um, in those five papers, only two of them had any axial elongation data um, whatsoever. Um, so uh, we couldn't sort of make such a, uh, how shall I say, um, comprehensive analysis across uh, three continents and five studies. Um, had we sort of wanted to use axial elongation. <clears throat> now, curiously, um, if you go to the Japan study, which we used in um, that paper, um, their axial elongation data kind of agrees with what you would expect. So if you've got a, um, a 1.67 times increase in uh, axial, sorry, in prevalence of myopic maculopathy per, di- per diopter, 
you might expect about a four to five times increase for every millimeter of axial length. And if you look at the Japanese data, you kind of see that. Um, and I'll uh, be happy to uh, share a graph. Um, the one other paper um, that looked at it, uh, the Chinese American study, um, it was a closer to a two times increase per millimeter of axial length. So it was it was falling short from what you would expect um, based on the um, the 1.67 multiplier that we found per diopter. So I don't think I explained that particularly lucidly. But anyway, um, it's an important thing to look at because I believe, and I think we all believe, it's it's the axial elongation that's the, the bad thing when it comes to uh, ocular disease and, ocu and complications of uh, higher levels of myopia. It's not the yeah, it's not the refractive error per se. It's not the thick glasses that cause detachment. It's the uh, stretch retinas. So, um, but it's something to to look at, and perhaps something I can uh, share through the with the group um, some of those axial length data, um, so people can maybe uh, pick them apart a little bit more. Well, I'm sure our fellow nerds would welcome that for sure. And it just... <laughs> We're you know, happy to admit we're all nerds. It's all about the nerdy goodness, oh, yeah. isn't it? And it is. uh, I think that that's a really nice spot to to actually finish on there, that there's so much that we still need to learn, uh, which makes it fascinating, obviously, for us myopia nerds. Uh, what we really need to think about is what we do from the clinical point of view, what we do in practice at this point, and that's what we've talked about really thinking about atropine carefully and thinking about not only the concentration, but what you're getting in the bottle, how you're dosing the patient, how can you ensure that it's actually working? And there's obviously a lot of, um, we had a little trip down chemistry lane there, which was a bit of a thrill right in the middle there. And mm -hmm. obviously there's lots for us to still learn about atropine. Yeah. I mean, I think it, what I would encourage everybody to do is to, you know, to keep an open mind um, uh, about, evidence you know we we're um we we are in the very early stages of understanding atropine and um particularly low concentration atropine on and its effect on slowing axial elongation you know i think we can be fairly certain based on uh studies out of taiwan and atom one and what the uh the dutch are doing in their their clinics in terms of higher doses of atropine 0.5 and and one percent um, but, you know, it's going to be several years before we fully understand uh, what the right concentration is uh, as far as low-dose atropine. But in the meantime, I think you know, our, pa our patients deserve the most potent treatments we can give them, whether it's atropine, ortho-K, contact lenses, whatever. And, you know, we do have an opportunity to be the doctor. Um, and to look at what we're doing, uh, look at what we're prescribing, and if we have the potential to prescribe a higher concentration um, in the absence of truly knowing what's in the bottle, then we should do so. Mm. I think that's a great spot to finish up on there. Be the doctor and keep your mind open and so much more nerdy goodness to come. So thank you so much for your time, Mark. I'll um, you. let you get back to your your Thursday and your Thanksgiving weekend coming up. 
Yep, I, uh, we went out uh, for about four miles of snowshoeing this morning. We had three feet of snow uh, up in the mountains uh, earlier in the week, so we went out and enjoyed that. It was blue sky, and uh, it was barely uh, up to freezing, but it was wow. beautiful to be out there. So, <laughs> so enjoy, uh, enjoy your uh, early summer uh, day in Brisbane. Enjoy my um, sun rising before 5 a.m. Yeah, don't worry, we do. <laughs> okay. All Wonderful. right. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye.